Thank you, Rachel. Well, good morning, Village Church. It's good to see you this morning. As usual, I am excited to be able to open God's Word with you and explore the depths that uh, we get to do this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. Rachel, in her announcement, gave actually a couple of key words that I really liked this morning. Uh, One was fall and the other was kickoff, and that makes you think about football. That's right, yeah. So football... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Football. So everybody on the podcast, everybody on the uh, on the podcast is going. What are those people booing at? All right, so. Football means there's big guys on the line, there's stars on the field, and there's blood on the ground, and that always makes me excited. Now, this guy you've seen before, this is Clay Matthews, and the reason that I picked number 52 of the uh, Green Bay Packers is because it's good to vote for a winning team, and <laughs> oh, it's not good to isolate your audience right from the get-go, but also because my wife loves Clay Matthews, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why, but she loves this guy, so... What if I were to tell you that your job today was to go meet this guy on the front line? He's going to be right nose to nose with you, and you have to meet him, and he is going to take ground from you. It's what you do in football. He's going to try and take ground from you, but your job is to stand there and not let him take any ground. How many takers would we have? Also, also, you want to try that? Also, here's here's the caveat to that. You don't get any pads. You don't get any uh, equipment. You don't get you don't get any any protection at all. Even the essential ones, no protection at all. Your job is to hold him off, stand your ground, and not lose any uh, any ground at all with no equipment. Scary to death. That was especially because I know his intentions are not good for me. He wants to take ground from me, and he doesn't care how I end up uh, in the smoke that he leaves behind. He, uh, He just wants to take ground from me. So... As we are talking about Ephesians chapter 6, and as we go on to talk about uh, the battle that we're in, picking up from last week, God reminds us that we cannot avoid this battle. We are going to be in a spiritual battle. If you know Christ as your Savior, even if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm here to tell you, if it's not clear to you yet, you are in a day-to-day battle. God says to us constantly in Scripture that we can't avoid battle, and there's no spectators. There's no one on the sidelines. You are on the field of battle. And the battle, by the way, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, is not against flesh and blood. So you're not fighting against Clay Matthews. Who is your enemy? Oh, he is a whole lot worse. He is a whole lot stronger. He is a whole lot more ferocious, and he is a whole lot more conniving. Your enemy is the devil himself and all his minions at his bidding. And his job is to ruin your life. Take everything you hold dear, everything that you love, everything that makes you happy, and destroy it. And in the meantime, he'll make you happy as a lark, but he'll be eating you from the ground up. He is finite, like we talked about last week. He is finite, but he is ferocious. He is scheming against us always. He schemes against us through the media. He schemes against us through rulers. He schemes against us through influential people that tear away at our culture. He he schemes at us through uh, uh, institutions that we love, school, marriage, all those kinds of things. He schemes at us constantly to tear our ability to stand against him down. And so we were forewarned by God in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, and here's where we start this morning. Church, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand 
firm. No ground, giving up. Last week, it's important to understand there's a battle going on to snuff out any spark of light that would burn brightly to demonstrate God's portrayal of righteousness on this earth. There's a battle going on, I'll say it one more time, to snuff out any spark of light that would burn brightly to demonstrably portray God's righteousness on this fallen earth. Every time you want to interject a principle of the gospel into your life, you are going to be engaged in battle. If you want to be the kind of husband that loves his wife, you are going to be engaged in battle. If you want to be the kind of wife that respects her husband, you're going to be engaged in battle. If you're going to be the kind of child that obeys his parents and honors his parents, you're going to be engaged in battle. If you want to be the kind of father that the Bible, that the Bible speaks highly about over and over again, you're going to be engaged in a battle. You're going to be the kind of worker or the kind of boss. Everything that we've covered up to this point in Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to interject the gospel, the truth of God's word, into life in general, you are going to be engaged in battle. When you try and put the gospel to work in real time, your enemy is going to notice and put you in his crosshairs. Now, the alternate is you can give up. You can do that. And it is the easiest thing to do. But the price is very very high. Most people do not engage in battle. They give up. This temptation's too great. This work is too hard to love my wife. Have you met my wife? It's too hard to obey my parents, to obey my boss. It's much easier to join everybody around and talk about what a moron he is. That's easy. But you walk down that path and you don't interject what God says we are to do through his word, then you are going to end up paying a price that is very, very high. Surrender may not cost you right now a whole lot, but it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. When you choose to live for Christ, you engage the evil one and his agenda for this world. And he has you in his crosshairs. Now, after saying all of that, let me just tell you this. And here's the best news of all, the news of the day. God is your shield. God is your buckler. Do you know what the word buckler is? It's a great word, English word. It means that God fits you with his armor so that you can succeed. There's a passage in Psalm chapter 91, verse four, it says this, God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you, see the picture here? Under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. He is faithful to shield you. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. God will fit you with his armor. His armor will protect you against any onslaught the devil will bring your way. And the armor is labeled as it is labeled in Ephesians chapter six for a reason. Each piece of the armor is essential for us to succeed as believers in Jesus Christ. It's like when you receive the Spirit, you receive the fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruits of the Spirit, because that indicates that you, uh, fruit of the Spirit is what? Remember this, church? Love, joy, peace, patience. Remember all that? All right. Fruits of the Spirit means that you can pick one, but not the other. So you can be loving, but not patient. You can be kind, but not, you know, you can pick one or not the other. But that's not the point. The fruit of the Spirit is given to us as a bundle because the Spirit is all of these things. 
And when he indwells us, we are loving, patient, kindness, goodness. We have those things because we have the spirit of God. The armor is the same thing. You receive one piece of the armor, God, God forms the rest to fit you. It is for you, and you've got to wear it all. The Bible always says, take up the full armor of God. You can't leave any of it laying on the ground. And each one is labeled specifically for a reason. So what I want to tell you this morning is fitted correctly, your armor will deliver a win. When it's fitted correctly, my armor will deliver a win. Look in your Bibles in Ephesians 6, verse 14. It's important that we understand that the word will is in here for a reason. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Let's talk about each one of these in order. There's seven in all. The last one is not necessarily a piece of armor, but essential nonetheless. The first one is church. The first one is, what is the belt of truth? The belt of truth is basically identifying me in my inmost being. We might call it integrity. It's who I am at the core. It's who I am when I'm with people. It's who I am when I'm not with people. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he warns Timothy that the battle that he's about to engage in, he is going to need this armor for in order to stand. And in order to stand, there has to be a sincerity about who he really is. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In other words, Timothy, if you're going to take on the devil... If you're going to interject the gospel of Jesus Christ into this world, you have got to be who you say you are at the core. That has to be your identity, who you are. The soldier has a faith that is sincere. His identity drives who he is and every decision that he makes. Now, some people say they're followers of Christ, but they never act like it. Have you met these people? There's quite a few of them these people would not have the belt of truth on very well because they're not who they say that they are. Their attitude and their actions change based on the environment or the people that they're with. And God says to us, when you put on your armor, the first piece that goes on is the belt of truth. You are who you say you are. And if you belong to Jesus Christ with integrity, you belong to Jesus Christ. They are good soldiers when they have an audience and they are good soldiers when they don't have an audience. There's a friend of mine, his name is Dewey Berlini. He lives in California and he was, he gave a, a message when I was, oh, many, many years ago now and I still remember this. Dewey moved to a new town and took on the job of a youth pastor. And because he was in a new town, he needed to open a bank account. So he went into the bank, he opened a bank account, and then he took out some money. I don't remember what it was, 60, 80 bucks, something like that. He took out the money, the teller gave him his money, and he turned around and he started walking toward the door and he's counting it. And as he's counting, he realizes the teller had given him $20 too much. 
So he turns around, he goes back to the teller. He says, listen, I asked for this much, 80 bucks, but you gave me an extra 20. And she said, I know. He said, what do you mean, you know? She said, aren't you the new youth pastor that just started working at the church down the street? And he said, yeah. He said, she said, yeah, I know you. And I know you started working that church. I gave you that $20 extra because I wanted to see what you would do with it. And he said, well, what if, what if I had kept walking out the door? She said, I would have had the security guard stop you and bring you back. <laughs> the belt of truth means we are who we say we are at all times, even when no one we think is looking. The belt of truth indicates that our integrity is built on the fact that we belong to God and we operate as God would want us to operate, no matter who we're with or what environment we're in. It's also interesting that God reaffirms us through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Here's, here it is in, in a nutshell. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. There's no room for any, anything else to love. You love God first and foremost. That's who you are at the core. The belt never takes a hit. In other words, the belt isn't an offensive weapon, nor is it really a defensive weapon. Do you know what the belt does? The belt is there to hook on every other piece of armor. It carries the sword. It hooks onto the breastplate of righteousness. It's what you put your sheath and hook your sheath on. And if your belt is on tight, your armor is on tight, no cracks. But if your, arm, if your belt is on loose, your armor sags. And when your armor sags, you're vulnerable. I know, I'm talking about cracks and sags in church. <laughs> the belt never takes a hit directly. It was never intended to be a weapon, but it's what we need for a solid foundation because we either are who we say we are or we're not. Second one, breastplate of righteousness. This means that we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you what your righteousness looks like, hopefully you would answer as scripture answers, all our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? We would say like Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, and just in case you missed it, not even one. So our righteousness doesn't register with God. We don't get anything that looks like righteousness. In fact, we look a lot like unrighteousness. Now the heart is the key to this part of the armor because what does a breastplate cover? It covers the chest and behind the chest is the heart. If you get hit in the heart, you're dead meat, literally. You don't wanna get hit in the heart, you want that breastplate to cover the heart, you want it to be strong. Our hearts are key to this because our hearts will lie to us and tell us that we're something we're not. Our hearts will tell us our righteousness is pretty good. Our hearts will tell us that our lives aren't quite as messy as we know that they are. Our hearts will tell us that if we had an audience with God, we might just impress him. And our hearts will deceive us into thinking that we are better than we are because if any of us would take stock of our lives and realize how many times our righteousness does not look like God's righteousness, oh, the list would be pretty long, don't you think? In fact, Jesus says, just in case you're missing all of this, here's what your righteousness needs to look like for you to impress God. He says at Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be, what's the next word, church? 
you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is your standard of righteousness. Anyone measure up to that? And just in case you're thinking, well, okay, I'm pretty close to perfect. Jesus says, no, 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 as God the Father, that kind of perfect. Without this piece of armor, our heart is exposed. Our hearts will lie to us every day. They will tell us we're fairly righteous. They will tell us we only have a few weak points. But in actuality, sin will creep into my heart unawares, and I will become somebody that I don't mean to become, and it happens very, very subtly. Left on my own, I sometimes even think that my messy life will impress God. And there's a whole lot of people like that in the world. I, I think about Tim, and, you know, and Tim, Tim works in his garage and he looks all messy in his little overalls and all of that. I can just picture Tim, I've never seen him, but I can just picture how this me- mechanic looks. And so, so, uh, so the president of the United States has a great feast and he invites Tim to come over and Tim's going, look at the time, I don't got time to change. I'll just show up like I am, nobody will even notice. So everybody who shows up in black ties and gowns and all of that, and Tim, Tim shows up in his overalls with his grease and stuff all over it, and he thinks to himself, no one's going to notice. So he walks in, he goes, hey, President, nice to see you, nice to meet you, look at all your entourage, that's fantastic. Who's going to notice? Is the people around Tim going to notice? Is the President going to notice? Only Tim is the one that deceives himself into thinking nobody notices. And that is our condition before God. If we think that our righteousness is going to impress God someday, that is the condition. Everybody around us, if you're wondering, ask them how righteous you are. They'll help you understand, all right? <laughs> the bottom line is, if we're that in that kind of a boat and our righteousness has to be the same as God, we need help in this area. And here's the good news. You got help. You got it. You wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't wear your own righteousness. Your heart is never exposed because you wear the righteousness of Christ over you. And that is the very purpose of the good news we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteous blood that we're going to celebrate here at the communion table, that blood covers my sinful blood. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees his son. When God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sa- you know who you are. I, you know, I may not know who you are. You don't know who I am. Way down deep in our hearts, but God, God sees his son. And you stand before God righteous, not in yourself, but because you wear the breastplate of Jesus Christ that covers your heart, it covers over your sin, it covers over your shame. One of my favorite verses in scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become righteousness of God. Jesus puts his righteousness over my sinfulness, and God sees Jesus because he covers me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Our hearts are secured. And boy, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are prone to wander, but God keeps calling us back and always covers us with his righteousness. My heart belongs to him. Number three, shoes. Shoes shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. What is this? This is knowing the unwavering peace that only Jesus can bring. Jesus did not come to keep peace. (laughs) Did you know that? Because there is no peace on earth, I said. You know that verse, right? It's the song. Jesus did not come to keep the peace. Jesus came to bring peace. Did you know in in recorded history, estimated recorded history, only 8% of human history has been peaceful? 
In over 3,100 years of recorded history, only 286 years have been peaceful. In that time, an estimated 8,000 treaties have been broken. In contrast, Jesus says when he comes and brings his kingdom, it would be known for peace. My kingdom, Jesus says, will be known for peace. Look at what he says in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Jesus clarifies the peace that he brings as being distinct and different from the world. John 14, 27. He tells his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Don't be confused. Do I give to you? So let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. Jesus brought peace into a world that didn't know peace. Jesus did not come to keep peace because this world does not know peace. The peace that Jesus brings, brings peace to unpeaceful situations. The peace that Jesus brings comes into my life so that even though the world around me is crumbling, I can still be at peace. I think about our brothers and sisters that are being tried for the gospel in all of these different Saudi Arabia and in, in, uh, places in China, in North Korea, terrible, uh, way through the Middle East uh, with the rise of ISIS. They're crucifying anybody that's found with the scriptures in the town square. They're burying children alive. This is going on in our world today. And yet those folks have a peace because even though the world is troubled and there's tribulation around and they're losing fathers and mothers and daughters and, and sons, there is a peace that they know that only can come from the Prince of Peace. Peace that Jesus talks about comes from the knowledge that the world may burn tomorrow, Trump or Hillary will become president. The kids may dislike me, I may deal with tragedy that creates sadness to my core. And that's all fine because I don't depend on any of those things for my peace. Jesus gives me a peace that is beyond this world so that even though the world may continue in tribulation, I know a peace because I know the Prince of Peace. I've seen this bumper sticker. You've probably seen it before. No Jesus, no peace, N-O. No Jesus, no peace, K-N-O-W. He commissions us not only to know this peace ourselves, but to carry this peace to the world that needs to know peace. Do you ever wonder why this is on our feet? Why is the preparation of the gospel of peace on our feet? Why is that distinguished as that being the part of the armor where our, peace come, where our peace is known? Because quite frankly, we bring God's peace into a world that does not know peace. Look at how the world uses their feet. Romans 3.18, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Contrast that with the feet of believers in Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who, what's the next word? Preach the good news. That means when Jesus brings peace into our lives, he doesn't expect us to sit back on our pew and enjoy it. Although you can. He expects us to get up put peace on our feet and carry the gospel that brings peace to a world that is full of tribulation. The world needs peace. And that's why in Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are those who bring, who bring the peace or to preach the good news to those 
who need it. Jesus came to bring a course correction for us to guide our feet into real peace. And that's why the Christians need to interject gospel into every part of their lives so that we take this gospel with us wherever we go, into our workplace, into our churches, into our families, into our friends, relationships all around us. We interject the gospel because that's the only thing that brings real peace. Number four, shield of faith. Shield of faith is basically living to trust Jesus through every fiery trial everything that comes our way. This is not saving faith. This is not like faith that lets me know I get to go to heaven, like my first time faith, although that's a part of it. But this faith is a faith that I live with on a regular basis. In Ephesians 6.16, here's how it says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. How many circumstances, church, are we to take up the shield of faith? Some, a few, all. All circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In other words, all circumstances are to be taken on with our faith. Our faith covers us. It covers every detail of our lives. I also think it's interesting that our faith not, all, not only is to be applied in all circumstances, but the promise in this, in this passage of scripture is powerful. With which you, what's the next word? can extinguish, not hope, not might, not boy, I hope this works out, can extinguish. In other words, your faith gives you everything you need so that you can be victorious in every trial. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him standing firm in your faith. There are two truths here. The first one is you will be attacked. Fiery darts will come your way. And my guess is they probably already have. That's number one lesson of life. Number two is the truth that all fiery darts can be extinguished through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says it, says it to us in 1 John 5 and verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our, what church? Faith. Even our faith. So what is faith? Faith is my increasing confidence that the truth of what Jesus says matters, will work, will be more powerful than anything I face in life. My increasing confidence in, in the truth that God is telling me. That's why faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, because quite frankly, the more we know God's word, the more we understand how to take on the evil one. Our faith is not faith in some abstract being somewhere. Our faith is in the promises that God gives us in his word. And so we live by the truth. We don't fall for the lies. It is our faith as if Jesus says, we put between the arrows that the devil sends our way and the doubt and the fear and the worry that comes our way, our faith is what extinguishes those arrows. Your confidence in Jesus Christ is your shield. And it doesn't have to be a dump truck of faith. Don't you love that? It doesn't have to be this huge load that God pours on top of you. How big does your faith have to be in order to be functional? Well, it has to be like the grain of a mustard seed. And I put a picture up there so you would see how small a mustard seed really is. 
Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Church, how many things would be impossible for us if we have faith like a mustard seed? Nothing. Now, you probably don't need mountains to move, but you probably need faith to be interjected into your life so you just stop buying the lies of the devil anymore. Number five, helmet of salvation. Staying focused in my identity in Jesus Christ. How many of you used to watch the NHL like a long time ago in the 50s when they didn't wear their helmets, right? Helmet, who wears a helmet? Pansies wear helmets. No, nobody needs. So you saw these guys and they would play, <laughs> they would play hockey with no helmets on. And then you'd meet them or they'd be interviewed afterwards on TV and you'd see them. They got a bump here and they got their chins hanging off here and their nose is never in the right place. And, and they've got the eyeball hanging out of its socket, no teeth. And you're thinking to yourself, that's a real man right there. That's a real man. Of course, only the men say that, right? Now we've gone the other way. The pendulum swing has completely gone the other way where we won't let our kids out of the house on the bicycle unless they're wearing a helmet. Uh, so there's got to be a happy medium in there somewhere. The helmet, of, the helmet is called the helmet of salvation for a reason. First Thessalonians 5.8 reiterates this. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, or for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This salvation is not necessarily saving faith. No more than the shield is. This salvation is daily salvation. It's a daily hope, the hope of our protection during the battle. The helmet keeps our minds focused and certain. That's why it's for the head. After all, the head is where the battle rages first, isn't it? When you do battle with the devil, it usually occurs first here. I don't know if you've watched war movies, but I, I watch these movies and you know, the, there's a, the battle rages and the battle rages and you've got this team and they're, they're solid and they know what they're doing. There's a battle plan, everybody has a part to play. But as the battle rages and all hell breaks loose, everybody starts to scatter and eventually the whole thing starts falling apart and the enemy starts to gain ground. And once in a while, you'll see one of the soldiers in the corner just with his knees up to his head and his arms around his face and his, and his gun on the ground and he's just sitting there cowering. He doesn't have his mind in the game anymore. It looks like the, the tribulation going on around him is too much and he can't handle it. His mind is out of focus and in the fog of war, he's lost his way. Satan will attack you by trying to persuade you that the battle is out of control. Satan will try and get to you this way. He'll try and get to you by telling you that the battle is out of control, God is not in control, and you're in trouble. You know there's a battle plan. You know what you need to do is keep your mind focused on here and focused in prayer. But sometimes when the battle comes to our front doorsteps, through our family, through our friends, through the world around us, we start thinking to ourselves, there's no way that God's in control of this. It's hard to look at ISIS and say, where's God in all of this, isn't it? That's why salvation is the helmet. Salvation gives us the confidence that God is indeed in control. There is a battle plan and God is not asleep at the wheel. Our confidence in our head that, that, that keeps our mind focused on, on the fact that God is still in control. And, it's, and it keeps our mind focused not only on that, but on the fact that we can be victorious still, even though the battle rages. We can, in fact, when the battle rages worse is when we put our helmets on the best. 
We focus on the truth that Jesus not only will win this battle that we're in, but he's won every battle since, and he has won the greatest battle of all. We focus on the victory that secures our victory, and that is the victory Jesus had on the cross of Jesus, of, uh, on his cross when he died, and he rose again three days later. Our minds are to be focused on the promises of, of God and the fact that this battle is already won. You have been saved. You are being saved. So get up and keep fighting. You already have the spirit of God at work in you through, the, through God's spirit. That's why the Bible says constantly these kinds of words. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. As the breastplate covers the heart from sin, so the helmet covers the head from error and fear. That is why when the battle rages heaviest, the helmet cannot come off. Our assurance of our salvation that Jesus has already won at the cross gives us confidence that Jesus will win this battle we're in right now too. We cannot lose our contact with the commander if our helmet remains secure. Once you put on the helmet of salvation, Satan can't have you anymore. You belong to God. You are his. That's why Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Correct thinking in this case means we remember who we are and whose we are. And we belong to God. And he doesn't lose. God doesn't lose. Number six, sword of the spirit. This is taking ground with God's word. The word sword, the word soldier actually means one who draws the sword. How does it feel when you watch a movie or something and you see somebody draw the sword and shout, battle? It kind of gives you a, a, a rush, right? And you want to go, I'll go there too. And then you start thinking about it. Oh no, oh, I don't want to do that after all. Yeah. Legs fall on the ground, arms fall off. No, nope, no. Nope. Braveheart, he can do that on his own. But he pulls out his sword and he yards battle and people run after him into battle to die, to fight, to win. Soldier literally means one who draws the sword. And when we are told that the word of God is our sword, it is our only offensive weapon. There's two words in scripture that mean word. <laughs> the first one you probably know, it's the word logos. It's a word, it's a word for word in the Greek. It's a wonderful word because it means a center core. That's why in uh, J John chapter one, uh, you can read about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's Logos. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. He was, and he is God. He was with God. He is God. Logos. He is a core. He is the word that we stand on. But there's another word for word called Rema. And this word is a, used in a different way. It's used to describe words that we live by. Some of the words that we live by are a penny saved is a penny earned. Have you heard that one before? Those are just like words you live by. You save a penny and then you, it's kind of like you earned a penny. Or don't walk through poison ivy. That's good words to live by, right? This is what the Bible calls, when, this is what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the words we live by. The word of God is rema. It's words we live by. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James 1, 9, 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Good words to live by. 
Ephesians 5.21, we talked about this one earlier when we went through Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are all words, speech, meant to use, be used in scripture that we pattern our lives after. And the Bible is meant to be this sword that slices apart so it reveals where our hearts really are at. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active as is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intention of the heart. When I counsel somebody, I counsel from the word of God. And the reason I do is because my words are not very good, but these words, these are words to live by. These words destroy, they they cut to the thoughts, they cut to the intentions. And the Bible lays bare the heart of man and women like nothing else. You can say, I can get angry, but it won't affect me. God's word says anyone who stays angry at their brother and sister is in danger of going to the fires of hell. You can say, I don't have a problem controlling my words. James 4.8 says no one can tame their words. It's an impossible task. You can say, I don't sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can say, basically, I'm a good person. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. See what the Bible does? These are words of the Bible. And when somebody says to you those words that are not exactly accurate, we take God's word and we say, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. And we use it as a sword. It's our offensive weapon. And when you see stuff on TV or coming from your kids or brought to you through the schools that you support through millions and millions of dollars of taxes, but if it's not exactly what God wants, you take it and you compare it to this and you say, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. See, it's words that we live by. It's the word that we stand on, but it's words that we live by. And that's why when you come to this church, you will always hear the word of God because these are words to live by. God's word does not pull punches. It shows where we need to change and we cannot ignore it. And a soldier knows how to use his weapon well. If this is our only offensive weapon, we should know how to use it well. Where do you think the armies of Satan will attack first? The soldiers who use their weapons well or the ones who can't pull it off the ground because it's too heavy? A soldier who cannot use his sword is a useless individual. All you can be basically is a speed bump for the enemy to crawl over. This is why knowing your Bible is essential for battle. This is why Psalm, the whole book of Psalms is written about the word of God. Hide God's word in your heart so that you will not, what? Sin against God. There's nothing more powerful than the words of God in the Bible. Listen, Satan doesn't flee when we tell him to. Satan flees when we know God's word enough to use it against him. Jesus Christ, when he was tempted in the wilderness, the son of God didn't say, Satan, you're getting on my nerves, beat it. Jesus quoted what? The Bible. Jesus used the Bible. And if Jesus used the Bible, so should we. Words are powerful. God's words are the most powerful. And used right, they can be used to fix a liar, correct gossip, heal and bring peace. They can be used to reconstruct what's broken down and make it into something new. Number seven, praying in the spirit. Praying in the spirit is basically staying connected with God. God speaks to us through his word and we speak to God through prayer. This is how we stay in connecting connection with God. And every person in scripture that did any damage for the kingdom of God always prayed beforehand. David, Dave, uh, Daniel, Nehemiah, name them. All these people in scripture that constantly, even Jesus would get off by himself and spend hours, even all night sometimes in prayer. 
Prayer is our constant contact with the commander. It's a source of our strength, and that's why it's not listed as a piece of armor. Did you notice that? Prayer bathes the rest of our armor. Prayer is what puts on our armor correctly. That's why the old song uh, used to say, put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. When duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. This is the one thing that's so important to Paul that he talks about prayer more than any other part of the armor of God. A soldier could have his belt on, his helmet on, his shield on, a covering, a sword, but he could still fail to triumph because he does not depend on prayer. Charlemagne, King Charlemagne was one of the greatest kings of the Middle Ages. He had an army commander whose name was Roland, and together these guys were unbeatable. Roland was known for carrying a horn at his side on his belt. And every time, if you looked up Roland, Charlemagne, Roland, any of that on the, on the, uh, on the Google machine, you will find Roland with this horn. The reason he carried the horn is because there was always, uh, there was always a group of, of uh, fighters that would come to his aid if he would blow the horn. Uh, and they weren't ever really that far away because they planned it this way. And so Charlemagne and Roland worked together this way. And Roland over time had so many battles and so many, so many victories that he began to blow his horn less and less. And one time coming through the Pyrenees Mountains, he was ambushed by the enemy, he and his troops. And he watched them come and he thought to himself, I can take them. And so he fought against them and he did not blow the horn that hung on his belt. And he fought against them and then he was ambushed from the back and they started taking out his soldiers from the back. And the last thing that he did was he blew his horn. And you can see this in any, any picture. You can see Rollin laying on a pile of dead bodies with his horn in his hand because he failed to blow the horn when he needed to. And prayer is a lot like that for us. You are in a battle daily and if you're not praying daily, you are not blowing your horn. You're not calling for the reinforcements that God has to give you. That's why every piece of armor is covered with prayer. Prayer is not one part, it covers all parts. And so we are told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without what? Ceasing. That means that wherever we go, we bring up God, we talk to God, we sit down and we eat, we, we, we get up and we pray, we pray with our kids, we pray while we walk, we pray when we come in here, we pray at communion, we pray always. We pray when we drive our cars, especially in Chicago. We pray, pray, pray. The writer says, prayers to cover every part of your life. How can you hope to live righteously without constant prayer asking God for help? How can you, de- pray? How can you deliver the message of the gospel of peace without prayer for God to take you and take your words and use them like he wants to? Prayer covers it all. And so armor, armor church is to be put on before the battle begins. Once the battle begins, it's too late to put on your armor. A soldier that puts on, assembles his armor on the battlefield will definitely lose. The more you wear this armor, the better it fits on you. It is God who is your shield and buckler. And that's why he says in 1 John 5, 4, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. We are overcomers. This is a victory that overcomes the world. It's your faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? It's not you. It's you if you believe that Jesus is the son of God because Jesus is the victor and we are on his side. Listen, Jesus is not on your side. You are on Jesus' side. Jesus doesn't condescend and figure out who you are and adapt to you and learn to love you where you're at. Jesus is the one who pulls you out of the mire of your sin, 
washes you off, gives you purpose, clothes you with armor, sends you into battle, and you can extinguish every fiery dart of the evil one because of Jesus Christ, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are on God's side. He is not on our side. And it's, it's really important that we remember that because if we get off on that, we'll start making up silly things like Jesus is my co-pilot. I don't want Jesus to be my co-pilot. I want Jesus to be my pilot. Beth is my co-pilot. <laughs> and I don't like her being my co-pilot all the time. Jesus is not my co He's the one that directs my life. He's the one that, that drives my life. He's the one that gives me purpose in life. Jesus takes me, gives me this message of reconciliation, calls me to a higher purpose than I have in my own self. He calls me to take ground back for the kingdom of God. He puts me on the field, not against Clay Matthews. He puts me on the field against somebody far more ferocious, but far more finite than we give him credit for. He puts me against Satan himself, and he says, take this guy on, you can win. And when we fight against the devil, it's not us who flees, it's him who flees. If we know how to use our armor correctly. You are not powerless. You have the resources of heaven at your disposal. In fact, you are armored head to toe with them. So pray the armor on daily. Wear your belt. Know whose you are and who you are. You are a child saved to be God's own child. Breastplate, hunger and thirst to see Christ's righteousness in your own life and in the world around you. Feet, Jesus has brought peace to you. Now be an ambassador for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the feet of those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shield, take refuge behind your shield. Take cover behind Jesus Christ. Have a strong faith that what Jesus says he will do. Helmet, keep your head in the battle. Protect your thoughts and your beliefs and don't go astray. Stay here. Keep your, eye, keep your head in the battle. Sword, realize the power of God's word and swing your sword like a samurai. And learn to pray as though your life depended on it. Stop living defeated, church, and start living like a conqueror because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We do not have it because we deserve it. We do not have it because you have looked on us and seen how great we are. We have it because you condescended to us one day. You gave us your son. He shed his blood so that we could be reconciled to you. And as a part of that giftedness, as a part of that grace, we receive armor that helps us live this life victoriously in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder of this. These, each of these pieces of armor, essential as they are, and help us to realize we are in a battle every day. Help us to go out of this place declaring victory through Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, but because of this armor that fits us because of Jesus Christ. And may we live as conquerors in this fallen world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.